This is Story and Rain Talks, the Story and Rain podcast. I'm Tamara, founder and editor in chief. After over 20 years in the fashion and magazine industries, I launched StoryandRain.com, a digital fashion, beauty, and lifestyle publication where we're bridging the gap between reading a magazine and shopping its pages. On this podcast, you'll discover the emerging trends and tastemakers that matter right now. As a catalyst for creativity and through candid conversations with our community of cultural arbiters, we're your resource for discovering today's most interesting people, projects, and products. And we'll explore the origins for game-changing ideas and careers. With our high-low approach to style and the belief that there's magic in the mix, we're going to inspire you to live your most stylish life. If you want to know anything there is to know about watches, turn to Adam Kraniotis, founder and president of Red Bar Group. A one-time advertising executive and Macy's copywriter, Adam's lifelong passion sparked at age eight because of a Casio, his grandfather, and a local mall in upstate New York led him to make a later in life career change. The result, the world's, yes, the world's largest horological enthusiast collective was born. And today, Red Bar boasts 80 chapters of watch lovers who span five continents, a testament to the power of positive connection that can be found on social media. And rid yourself of the notion that this is an elitist community. You may be fooled into simply and carelessly associating Red Bar with watch labels like Rolex and Patek Philippe. Sure, brands of the luxury ilk are certainly a distinct part of the mix and interest, but what Red Bar crew members share and celebrate above all else is the size of their passion for timepieces, not the size of their wallets. On this podcast, Adam tells a story behind the group's launch and name. He talks about his role as editor-at-large for Revolution Magazine. He fills us in on the industry's quartz crisis, gets into the notion of being surrounded by time. We talk about creating a network, life as a freelance writer, and being shut out of watch groups himself and not wanting anyone else to experience the same. Adam's credo is that watches should be fun. He explains how he sourced get this shit doneness and the importance of wanting to be where you're wanted. We hear about Red Bar's very firm, no assholes policy, the brand's give back fun and collabing to create Red Bar timepieces. We finish our discussion with an exclusive of six watch list roundup where Adam outlines his six favorite watches to buy, including one by the brand that is expertly eradicating the distinction between what we have traditionally called a woman's watch and what we know to be a men's watch. Here's episode 93 featuring an old dear friend and premier watch expert, Adam Craniotis. Typically, I start the podcast with a guest's early life and how creativity emerged or appeared. But you and I have known each other since we were 18. And I know you've always had a creative soul. You were born and raised in New York City like me. An Upper East Side, uh, an Upper West Sider, not like me. That that's important. Upper West Side. It's a very, it's a very big distinction. It is. I'm not sure that many people know that you had an entirely different career for many years before deciding to merge your love of watches and watch collector status with your livelihood. What was life like then, pre Red Bar Group? You know, it, it was it was the typical slog. You know, I was doing jobs that I was good at, but that I, I wasn't passionate about. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. Look, New York City is an expensive city to live in. You know, it, it wasn't a question of just sort of following my bohemian dreams. 
Uh, and yeah, so I, I worked for um, a number of ad agencies. Uh, I was a copywriter. Or writing was always sort of what I was good at. And then I wound up working for Macy's of all places. And soul crushing as it was, you know, it definitely, you know, kept me uh, solvent and, and eating. And you were there for a while. Well, I was there for a while. And you know what? I, I can't. I can't say that it was the worst experience in my life. I've certainly had worse jobs than that. But, you know, it was a point where I had gotten married. I had a child. And so, you know, I needed to work. This wasn't my uh, ideal job. It, it, it certainly wasn't being an astronaut or a fireman or, or anything yeah. that you wanted to do when you were younger. But the irony being that I, I met some of the best people uh, in my life while I was there. And we were all sort of united in the fact that we were doing something that was completely meaningless. Oh, I kind of love that. I didn't realize that exactly. Now back a bit. When did buying and loving watches become collecting watches? Do you remember the purchase or the catalyst? I, I'll tell you right now where it started. It, it started with my grandfather. You know, when I was a child, uh, I have a twin sister, Lauren, and, and the two of us every summer we spent the entire summer upstate New York in uh, Binghamton with my grandparents. That's where my mother was from. It's only now as a father of two that I realized just how lucky my mother was that she could just send us away. Offload. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I can't do that. It was free. But we loved it. We loved it. We, we were with our family. We were with our cousins. And it was a different world, uh, Binghamton. And uh, they had the, the Oakdale Mall. It was, a, you know, and malls were big in the 80s. Uh, or 70s, because that's how far back I'm going here. And there was a place, a store called Bradley's. And it would be a sort of akin to maybe the target of today, you know, affordable stuff. And they sold a little bit of everything. My grandmother would, you know, she would go and start looking at the sales and seeing what clothes she could get and this and that. But I would go to the watch counter. And every time we were there, I was just plastered. Uh, just looking at the stuff. And, and it's interesting. It was Casio. The watch brand Casio. Which you still have an affinity for. Well, and that, and so it ties into this because that was where I started. And, you know, I knew that I didn't have money and, you know, I, you know, what I'm, I'm, we're talking about somebody who's five, six, seven, eight years old, but my grandfather kind of watched me and he was sort of like, what, this kid, every time we come here, he's just over there at that counter even though, you know, my wife is buying them underwear and shoes and blah, blah, blah. And one day he came up to me and he said, which one do you want? Wow. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And I think a lot of watch collectors, a lot of people that are, are deep into this have one of those moments, one of those moments of clarity where the clouds part and a ray of light just comes down on you and you say, this is, where, this is what I'm about. That was my moment. Wow. You know, in my family, you didn't get presents unless it was your birthday or Christmas. Now, maybe if you saved a bunch of nuns from like a burning building, <laughs> you might get something. But, you know, my mother was not, you know, one to just bestow gifts. And so I sort of thought to myself, like, do I take them up on this? Do I not? I, I, I don't know what to do. But, you know, the greedy part of me is like, I'm getting a watch, motherfucker. And so I, I, I chose a watch. And it was funny. I, the watch that I chose was a Casio F7. Now, this is probably 19, it was like 1979, 1979, 1980. 
and all the watch did, it, it told the time and you pushed a button and a light came on. And when I say a light came on, it's not like these electroluminescent panels. There was like a tiny little light bulb that you pushed and this weak beam, you know, and, and yeah. but you kind of make out the time. And I still remember my grandfather looking at me and said, kind of like, you know, there's calculator watches there. There's, there's other cool stuff. But I knew we didn't have a lot of money. And I said, no, that's the watch I want. And he bought it for me. Casio F7. <laughs> I have it. The band is just crumbled to dust, you know, because the plastics back then were not so great. But, uh, and, my, and it got, and I wore it, you know, I still remember when my mother came up to pick us up to bring us back to the city. And I was trying to hide it. I didn't, I didn't want her to see it because she would know. She would say, hey, what the hell is that? You can't buy him a present. It, it's, it's not his birthday. Give me that. And it was funny. She didn't say anything. And, uh, and we've talked about it after the fact. And she's like, oh, I totally knew you had the watch, you know. And, um, and so, yeah, so, so that was my first watch. But after that, that was it. That dates a long way back. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> no, but to become so passionate about something at such a young age is wonderful. It's great. I, you know, it is, it is, it, it was, it was a, it was a lodestar for me. It was something that I followed and, and I never lost it. I never lost, you know, anytime I had an allow, well, I had an allowance, but anytime I got money for, you know, a birthday or this or that, it all went into watches and it was always Casio. When did you shift from Casio to looking at other watches seriously? I, you know, as I got older, you know, one thing we have to remember is that I, I'm turning 50 this year. And, you know, we didn't have the internet back then. We didn't have social media or any of this other stuff. So you really had to do it on your own. So the, the wider world of horology was not necessarily opening. That's right. So I really focused on Casio, but also I focused on what I could afford. And you have to remember, too, that in the, the late 70s, early 80s, you know, digital was king. Quartz was king. You know, the, 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 they have something they call the quartz crisis, in the watch industry, when I say the watch industry, the mechanical watch industry. And that was when uh, 1969, uh, Seiko came out with the world's first quartz. And quartz, of course, is powered by a battery. It uses a quartz crystal uh, that, that emits a certain frequency. And that's sort of the, the regulator for the watch to keep time. And so these watches were much more accurate, much more durable, and much more affordable than the traditional standard bearer Swiss watches. And so like I said, it was an existential crisis for the industry because why am I spending all this money on a mechanical watch when I can go out and buy a watch that honestly in every sort of objective measure is better? Right. A schizophrenic moment in watches, right? Well, not even schizophrenic because it was sort of like it was a durr. Remember, watches before, you know, we had cell phones and all this other stuff. It wasn't an affectation. It was, it was a necessity. You needed to tell the time. We weren't surrounded by time like we are now. I always joke that nobody needs a watch today. Oh, I love that idea of being surrounded by time now. That's interesting. But we are because you get in your car and there's a clock that's linked to a GPS. You, you, you're on the subway platform. There's a clock. You're in the subway. There's a clock. I'm looking at my computer right now. Oh, look, there's a clock. Time is all around us now. We don't need it. We don't need a watch to tell us what time mm -hmm. it is, as much as we used to. And so, because back in the day, you bought the best watch you could. Yeah. And, and yeah. maybe that was a Patek Philippe perpetual calendar. 
maybe it was a Hamilton. Right. You know, it doesn't matter, but you needed you needed to tell the time. And courts sort of democratized yeah. the industry. They democratized horology and watches. Everybody could have a watch. And not only could you have a watch, you could have the most accurate watch, the most reliable watch. And so for me, riding that wave as a child, you know, I was born into the courts era. I wasn't thinking about mechanical watches. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older, you know, and then that's when it sort of switched and I started looking into the history. But remember, I had to do it analog. How did you use your creative skills working in advertising versus how you use them now? You know, it's just writing. I'll be honest with you. I was a very introverted child, you know, speaking in front of people and holding events and kind of, you know, creating a, a, a network of watch collectives around the world. You would have said, screw that. There's no way that kid could do that. Um, I still am not quite sure how this happened, but, you know, for me, you know, the, the creativity comes through my writing, you know, I, I, before I started, so I am the editor in chief for, or sorry, I was the editor in chief for Revolution uh, Magazine in the United States. I did step down so I could focus more on Red Bar. Uh, I'm now the editor at large for the magazine. But even before I started doing that, I was uh, writing for a number of trade publications. And I was doing that because it was fun and it was something I could do and it was something I cared about. You don't get rich doing this, unfortunately, but passion is passion. So it feeds my soul. Adam, you've always been articulate in how you share your thoughts. You're a wordsmith. You're a talker. I would think that your skill in this area makes you particularly excellent at talking about watches. Watches at this level are all about nuance and detail, aren't they? Yes. Well, you know, you're reinventing the wheel. Let's be honest. A watch has one job to do, and that's to tell the time. But we can play a little bit with how it does that. And, you know, typically it's, it's a dial and it's 12 hash marks and they might be numbers, they might not be. And there are a couple of hands, maybe a second hand. And then you can start throwing more crap on there. Now the crap, as I'm calling it, we consider those complications. Anything beyond the basic telling of time is a complication. So a watch has to tell you hours and minutes. But we can throw in seconds. We can throw in a date. We can throw in a moon phase. We can throw in a chronograph where you can stop and start a specific time setting ability. You know, we can put a mechanical alarm in there. So there are lots of different things you can build on top of that. It's a canvas and a blank canvas. And so what I love is that every year, in order to stay current, in order to, to keep everybody interested, the companies have to come up with new ways to get you to part with your money because the watch you bought five years ago, 10 years ago, or even yesterday, they're all valid. They all work. They all do the job they're supposed to do. So why am I going to go out tomorrow and buy another one? And, and that's why I love the industry because how they get you to do that and why you want to do that, it's creativity. It's creating a new case design, a new dial, a new this or that. And there's some brands, independent brands mainly, that sort of turn the whole notion of how we tell time with a, with a, with a tiny piece of metal on our wrist on its head. Adam, you're president and founder of Red Bar Group, as well as editor-at-large for watch site, magazine, and retailer Revolution. Describe exactly what Red Bar is. So Red Bar Group is a collective of watch enthusiasts, um, you know, that, that 
honestly gather in person to talk about watches. We now have uh, a network of um, 80 chapters around the world. Uh, I believe that encompasses five continents. Uh, I'm working on getting us in Antarctica. It's a little bit of a stretch, but I, I would love to do that. But a good goal to have, yeah. Well, you know, you got to try. You got to you got to reach for the stars. And uh, but it but it's been wonderful because what it's done is it's really opened up horology for a lot of people. I think you know something like watch collecting might be associated with being an elite activity because there are so many luxury watch brands. But what you do at Red Bar, there's no criteria for what your collector has. I've always said, yeah, we, we don't measure the size of your wallet. We measure the size of your passion. You know, and honestly, part of the, the inspiration for Red Bar was the fact that that I was shut out of, you know, some groups and some things, you know, back in the day where, you know, my collection wasn't considered, you know, exclusive enough or rare enough. And, you know, I wasn't connected enough. And I just sort of felt like that this is not this is not how it should be. And so going forward and, and even to this very day after all the years and having established Red Bar that I still am that person. And so I remember what that felt like. And I don't want anyone else to feel like that. I think that watches should be fun and it should be a hobby that, that everybody enjoys. And again, I, I said it before, I'll say it right now. Nobody needs a watch. You know, we're, we're not putting men on the moon. We're not curing cancer here. It should be fun. And some of the best and most interesting brands are and were born that way. This thing that I need doesn't exist. I'm going to go and try and make that thing, right? What was happening during the time that you decided to pull the trigger and launch Red Bar when you decided to turn it into a thing? You know, we, we'd been holding the meetings in the city for a long time. And of course, it started here in New York uh, and it was very organic. There was no intention to take Red Bar beyond what it was. Um, and in fact, the name Red Bar comes from the name of the bar that we actually first met at. I, I started the company back and it wasn't a company. I, I just started the initiative uh, back in around 2006, 2007, a good friend of mine, Dr. Jeffrey Jacques, uh, we just, we met up and we were sort of like, hey, you like watches, you like watches, you're cool, you're cool. Maybe we should just meet up once a month and just sort of talk about our shared passion. I remember those days. I was going to have you tell the story of the name. Does that bar still exist? Alas, alas it does not. And uh, oh. I had been to this bar before many years ago. And so this friend of mine, Dr. Jeff, we realized we worked like three blocks away from each other. And so we decided, you know what? All right. I, I said, I'll find a place that's equidistant from our offices. You remember I was at Macy's at the time. And so- Right, you know, the good old Manhattan equidistant. Equidistant, well, well you gotta, you know, look, everybody's, you know, it can't make it hard. And so and so I, we settled on this place, a Korean dive bar above a Korean restaurant on 35th Street off of 6th Avenue. And that, and that was it. That's how it started, we once a month. Uh, and the woman who owned the place was this lovely Korean woman named Sai. And it just sort of grew from there. You know, the, the two of us meeting, we would post pictures on a couple of websites, you know, enthusiast websites that were, you know, part of that that uh, scene back then. And then other people would say, oh, this looks great. What are you guys doing? Oh, I'm in the city. Next thing you know, there's three of us. Then there are five of us and there are 10 of us. Now we're meeting every two weeks. Now I'm sending out emails. Now we're meeting every week. And, and it just grew. Unfortunately, uh, the, the bar did shut down. 
the owner moved back to Korea and we, we found a new place. We stayed in the neighborhood. But by that point, we'd already sort of uh, captured the attention of some brands. And then social media became a thing. And that's where it sort of exploded because we started posting it. And then other people came in and they said, hey, you know, every Wednesday night, I, 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 I look on my feed on Instagram and I say, hey, I love what these guys are doing. Look at all these watches. People are having fun. I want to do that. But, but I live here. Can I take this? Can I call it? And then I was like, can I call it Red Bar? Well, I mean, sure, because I just, I just named our account Red Bar because that's where we were meeting. <laughs> right. No bells and whistles, just the facts. Yeah. So Red Bar actually has nothing to do with, with anything other than I wanted to honor. Uh, so the woman who, who actually owned the place, I found out because I, I know a lot of people in the area and whatever, um, she passed away. Oh, and so to me, when I actually created the company and we established it as an LLC, I wanted to name it Red Bar in honor of her. I think the elephant in the room for many people is that they have a passion or a creative pursuit sitting in a little lockbox that they carry around with them day in and day out. It's there, but for various reasons, it stays there. The dream or the craving never gets realized. And you're someone who bravely did the thing. I think people would really want to get your advice for doing it themselves, as well as hear about some of the things you faced or struggled with in doing so. I would say the first thing is that, is this something you really love? Is this something you're willing to die for? And I know that sounds dramatic. Uh, Not really, maybe though. Die, well, maybe die financially. Right. I was lucky in that, you know, I, I, I worked long enough and I was in a position where I could leave Macy's to start this. And also my wife was about to start working again. We have children. I worked, she stayed home. And then we were kind of moving that over. Like at the end of the day, you have to feed yourself as much as passion and, and whatever is important. We live in a real world. <laughs> uh, and so we were able to do that. And, you know, and a lot of that is luck. But the other part of that, too, is finding good people to work with you. Now, I've been doing Red Bar for a long time, not professionally. Like I said, it was completely organic. There was no intention of turning this thing into anything more than it was. Once I realized that there was a potential for that, I brought in people that I thought could help me take it to the next level. One of these people is my current business partner and the CEO of Red Bar, Kathleen McGivney. And this is a woman who I, I'd worked with years before at another technology company. She had moved away. She was in California. She came back to the city, started seeing what I was doing, brought her and her new husband along and like, oh, this is cool. And then got so deep into it, you know, that, that she's, she's actually a, you know, a personality industry and a collector in her own right. But she also brought with her a level of understanding and a level of just Let's get this shit doneness that I don't have. There are many people that don't have that. Another person is my friend James Lambden. He has a company called Analog Shift that is partnered now with uh, Watches of Switzerland, which is one of the world's uh, largest authorized dealers, retailers. They're in Soho. They're around the world. It's actually a billion-dollar company now. And I met James even you know, long before Red Bar, long before he had started his own company. And so honestly, between the two of them, the three of us sort of just said, hey, we can do this. And it's interesting because this all happened before any of that other stuff, but we're still here. 
Here's a question for you. Here's something that many creatives face or have faced. Has building work around your passion, your hobby, sucked the love out of it for you ever or in any way? Sometimes it's hard for me to really sit down, unplug, and enjoy a magazine. I've spent so many years making magazines that it's hard to not think about the making of them while I'm reading them. You know, I think anyone who who turns their passion into their business uh, ultimately has to face that issue of, you know, is this fun now or is now that I have to do this for a living, has it has it kind of, uh, you know, tanked that experience? And I've definitely had moments where I'm just like, you know, screw it. I'm done. I'm going to sell all my watches, uh, just get an Apple watch. I'm going to take up knitting, you know, I'll get another hobby. Um, and but yet I always seem to come back around. And I think if it's a true passion, certainly you're going to have, you know, good days and bad days because work is work, but you're always going to find something that keeps you going and something that continually sort of attracts you to it. And I think what I love about the watch industry, and I mentioned this before, is that it's like you're continually trying to reinvent the wheel, you know, And, and that requires a lot of creativity. And while I'm not a watchmaker, it's something that I love seeing. I love seeing people continually refining the concepts, coming up with new ways to actually tell time on a watch and, and, and keep people engaged. And so I, yeah, I've definitely had my moments, but at the end of the day, you know, horology is something that I've loved since I was a child. So I'm still here. That might change tomorrow though. How did building Red Bar push your creative prowess? I think it's, it's, you know what it is? It, it's made me a little bit more viable in terms of my work. Uh, before I joined Revolution, uh, I was writing for a number of different magazines as a freelancer, and, you know, just for fun. You know, that, that I, I, I love them all. There's uh, International Watch Magazine, there's Watchtime Magazine, there's the website Gear Patrol. Um, and I, I just love sort of sharing my knowledge. And, you know, it wasn't about making money. And, and again, you don't get rich in uh, print and, and online. But Red Bar gave me a platform, I think, that I didn't necessarily have. And indeed, it wasn't without Red Bar, I wouldn't have joined Revolution magazine uh, initially as their editor-in-chief for the United States. And like I said, I, I have more to do with Red Bar. I had to kind of step back from that. But um, it's a publication that I really love and respect. Uh, the founder, Waco, is an amazing individual. He also founded the magazine The Rake. It's a men's fashion magazine. So... You know, it's, it's, you know, for me, it's an honor to be associated with them. What has been the most rewarding part of establishing Red Bar? I think it's, it's meeting people randomly who kind of recognize me and say, hey, thank you. And, and I love what you do. And, and it's allowed, you know, me as a, an individual collector to grow. It, it doesn't happen often. Trust me. It's not like I'm Brad Pitt walking down the street. But <laughs> I, 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 one thing I love, I was in Japan with, uh, with Casio of all people. And uh, Yodabashi is a, a major uh, electronics retailer there. And I was talking with a friend of mine and we were, you know, another friend on this trip. And then this guy comes around the aisle. He goes, hey, wait, you're Red Bar. You're at, and I'm like, wait, what? I mean, I'm in, I'm in Tokyo. You're like, I'm on another continent. Yeah. And, uh, and he's like, I, I love what you do. And I follow you. And I can't believe I, I just heard you. I, I, find, I saw you were in Japan. And oh, my God, here we are. And it, it just it made me really happy. What's your favorite part of the job? 
I'll tell you, you know, I, I, I'm a homebody. I, I like being home, but the job involves a lot of travel, uh, especially before COVID. Yeah, I was, I was uh, literally every week I was somewhere else. And while I'm not the biggest fan of traveling, I've met some of the most wonderful people who are involved in this industry. And so to be able to travel, again, whether I'm in Japan or in Switzerland or, or wherever, you know, to be with these other individuals who this is their passion too, it's wonderful. Like I said, none of us, none of us are getting rich doing this, right? but we do it and we love it. And, and so to meet these like-minded people, you know, it's, it's been the best. What has been your favorite project for Revolution to date? Well, my favorite project, um, it was right before the whole COVID uh, pandemic hit, LVMH, uh, so Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, and the world's largest luxury conglomerates. They own a number of watch brands, including Tag Heuer, Zenith, Bulgari. They had a, what they called their LVMH Watch Week, and this was 2020 in Dubai in uh to yeah 2020 yeah 2020 in dubai so right in january and so i went out there to sort of cover the event and and you know look at the watch companies that were there look at the new releases and one of the the best things we did is i met with um fabrizio bonamassa stigliani so that's the best italian name ever fabrizio bonamassa stigliani now, this man is a genius, and he's sort of their uh, technical creative director, whether it's the, the jewelry, the watches, what have you. And so one of his signature lines is the Octo Finissimo. And he took a design that was sort of uh, spearheaded by one of the world's most prolific and knowledge watch designer, Gerald Genta. And they, of course, Bulgari bought the rights to Gerald Genta's lines. And so he took this watch, but he created like an ultra-thin but still very architectural design, the Octo Finissimo. And so Waco, who is the founder of the Rank and Revolution magazine and also an alumni of Eunice, I might throw in there. Two of us sat and talked with uh, Fabrizio. And while we were talking about the current collection, we started thinking, how can we take this to the next level? Is there a limited, is there something we can do with Revolution and you? And the seeds were planted for a limited edition watch with Revolution and Bulgari. And so to me, the fact that not only did we do that, that Wei gave his input, I gave my input, and the watch was ultimately done. And here I'm actually wearing it. Oh, incredible. So that, that for me was, it was a, huge, a huge thing. The watch collector community is a very niche community. Yes. And you've met thousands. Who is the typical watch collector? Or is it, in fact, an eclectic group? It's a very eclectic group. And that's what I love about it. You know, there's no, you know, template. You know, and and look, we've got plenty of douchebags, trust me. And then we've got plenty of, of people who are passionate about a very specific niche of watches. And we've got people who just want a piece of everything. And and that's what I love. And I don't care. Look, the douche bro can come and hang out with us. Just don't be too douchey. You know, and, the, and the, the focus collector who might be a little snobby, that's great. Pull back the snobbiness a little bit. And then everybody gets together and has a great time. Are there any particular collectors that have made an impression on you? I mean, without naming names. All of them. And I know that it sounds like the easiest answer. 
but everybody has taught me something. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what I love the most is I've seen people even before, you know, Red Bar became a thing and we were just a local group, but somebody would come into the city and, they, and they, you know, they knew what they loved. I love steel Rolexes from this era. And that's all I love, but I'm going to come and hang out with you guys anyway. And then watch over a period of time as their collection changes and their taste changes because they've been exposed to, to other people and other watches or people who just, you know, they have a passing interest, a friend of a friend said, Hey, I'm going to bring you here. And then you've watched them go from zero to 60, so to speak, and, and have built up a collection that, that for them makes perfect sense. And I love that. It's, you know, look, we're, we're not, like I said, we're not curing cancer. You know, we're not doing great works here, but people are happy and, and, and they're making connections with other human beings. As an expert, you've been quoted in publications like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, the Financial Times. And as an expert, I'm certain you get asked a lot of the same questions, both by collectors and by people who simply want to buy a watch. What do you get asked the most without fail? Is it one question? Is it a handful? The question you always get is, is this a good watch? <laughs> like just, right. <laughs> you know, the, yeah, just somebody will send you a photo and say, hey, I want to buy this watch. Is this a good watch? And, you know, the question is more complicated nowadays because the game has changed. You know, I call this the hype economy that we live in now. We're at a point where, and it started, honestly, it started with something as prosaic as sneakers. Yeah. Think about it. The sneaker heads just got in there yeah. and they hyped them up. And then all of a sudden there were bots buying the sneakers. You didn't get in in time. And now you have to go online, but now it's 10 times what it cost before. And that has sort of infiltrated watches. So a lot of people, you know, they, they want the hot watch, the hype watch. And whether that's a, a steel Rolex, a Submariner that should cost eight, $9,000, but now you've got to pay $20,000, whether it's an Audemars Piguet that should be $25,000, but now it's $125,000 on the gray market. And, you know, well, should I do this? And so it's hard for me because I've never viewed watches as an asset class. Right. And, and it, look, I have the luxury of saying, I buy what I like, I wear what I buy, I don't care. But let's be honest, there's a lot of money. It's an investment for people. And it's, so it's hard for me to approach that. It's hard for me to say, like, because I don't view it that way. I used to say, you know, oh, is this a watch good investment? You know, it's a good investment, real estate. <laughs> right. You know, or buy gold. I don't know. You know, buy the watch you like, buy what you like, and then wear it. That, that was always my, my philosophy and, and my advice. But in good faith, I don't know that I could say that nowadays because there's so much money at stake. So it's kind of on some level, it's really, I don't want to say it's ruined the hobby, but it's a conversation that a lot of people are having, a lot of the old dogs and a lot of the people that are even coming in, but coming in for the right reasons. And, it, and it's difficult. I'll, I'll use this example. I own a Royal Oak Jumbo. This is a, a watch that has kind of sort of hit, you know, the, the zeitgeist. It's a watch that I'm not even going to tell you what I paid for it, but it's worth about $100,000 now. Congratulations. Yes. But I'm someone who I, I could definitely use $100,000, but I also really love watches and I love this watch. I don't need to sell it right this second, but there's a part of me that's saying, 
is it irresponsible for me to own a watch like this because of what it can do for my family or this or that, or I, I don't, I shouldn't own this watch. And a lot of people now are grappling with that question, whether it was a watch that they've owned that has become worth so much, or maybe they're in a position where they can buy the watch at this price point, knowing that it might even go up further. And so now it's not so much a hobby that's about giving yourself this visceral pleasure of looking at the time on your wrist and being happy about what you've got. Now it's become a question of financials. And, you know, and then that's not so much fun. Now, is it a hobby or is this your business? Right. Plain and simple. What is it that you love about watches? Why do you find them important? I've always said that that watches to me, and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about the, the highest complication mechanical watch or even a digital watch that's just telling you the time. It's an intersection of science, technology, and art that doesn't necessarily exist anymore. And so mainly, yes, mainly we are talking about mechanical watches in this sense, but it's interesting that it's both timely, pun intended, and anachronistic at the same time. We need to know the time, no matter what. It doesn't matter if what we're telling the time is something that is being fed to me from a screen through GPS satellites or something that's mechanical on my wrist as long as it's correct. But if what is mechanical on my wrist is something that is designed with an eye towards the aesthetics, that's designed with an eye towards fitting ergonomically on my wrist. It's designed with uh, an eye towards legibility so that I can actually use it as the tool that it's meant to be. And that is designed on a level that is somewhat artistic. And we don't really have an industry that does that anymore. And so to me, a watch on your wrist can be all three of those things. Let's talk a little more about the watch market right now. What's happening? We talked about this on a call recently when I shared that a friend was trying to buy a Rolex for her husband. What are prices like? Describe the state of the watch market. I, I tell people it's like these maps we used to have back in the day where, you know, they, they, could, they could figure out, well, we know here, here, here. But once we get out there, we, we don't know what's going on. And so what they would do is they would draw dragons. And they'd say, yeah, we're off the map and there'll be dragons here because we don't know what goes beyond that. And to me, that's kind of where the industry is right now in terms of becoming an asset class and maybe existentially trying to figure out what is this all about? At the end of the day, look, watches are a business like anything else. These companies aren't selling watches out of the goodness of their hearts. They need to, to make money and they need to stay in business. But there's a point though, where you're just looking at the secondary market and saying, what is going on? You know, when, when you have a company like Rolex and, you know, let, let's be very honest here, while it is the most well-known watch brand and probably one of the most valuable, if not yeah. the most valuable singular luxury brands out there, they make about a million watches a year. This is not, you know, a bunch of, you know, wizened old Swiss men, you know, with beards and lab coats, you know, in a, in a mountain on the Matterhorn, you know making things with their hands. I mean, this is robotic. These are assembly lines. This is everything. And yet they're some of the most sought after watches to the point where if you walk into a dealer right now and say, I want a Submariner, a very basic model, tells the time, waterproof, stainless steel, no precious metals. 
and I'm going to, yeah, here's my money. I'm going to walk out with the watch. They're going to laugh at you. The waiting list for one of these watches is measured not in days or weeks or months. It's measured in years. And why is that? Doesn't need to be that way. They, they say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Supply, you know, demand outstrips supply, but it doesn't. You know, they can change that. They're choosing not to. Um, if you look at Audemars Piguet and Patek Philippe, you know, there's a certain subset of their watches, stainless steel sport watches. That's the big deal. Stainless steel sport watch. That's right. The, the, the point I was making with my Audemars Piguet uh, 152202 Jumbo, a watch that retails for under $30,000 and sells for over $100,000. The Patek Philippe Nautilus is even worse. And the irony was these watches were not meant to be their top of the line models. Patek Philippe is known for their complications, their precious metal cases, but everybody talks about that watch. And, uh, you know, even within Rolex, their gold models, their platinum models, their bejeweled models, not something I'm hugely fond of, but nobody talks about them. It's just a sport. So it's very focused. And, and, and I don't think for the right reasons necessarily. I think the people that are jumping into this hobby now are people, you know, that have a couple nickels to run together and they want the hype. So yes. I, either they want to wear the watch that they can flash at the club or at the country club or at the business meeting and people say, oh, hey, look, that guy got that watch or at the actual club so they can score and say, hey, yo, I'm flossing, check me out. And to me as a purist, and I say purist not in the snobby sense, but as somebody who just loves watches for watches, you're ruining it for the rest of us. The rest <laughs> of us broke mofos who can't, you know, play at that level. And to talk more about the trend perspective, what's hot in watches? What is not so hot anymore? Oh, well, what's hot now is, is stainless steel, integrated bracelet, um, and, and from a brand that you've heard of. So, you know, in the mainstream, that's Patek Philippe, that's Audemars Piguet, that's Rolex. That's the new holy trinity. Um, you know, beyond that, I would say within the collector circles, we're looking more at the independent manufacturers. These are brands like uh, F.P. Journe, um, and then even more esoteric brands like MBNF, uh, Max Busser and Friends, which I love, uh, Erwerk, um, and companies that sort of take the notion of how we tell time and turn it on its head. Uh, so it's, you know, it's strange times, but at the end of the day, right now, like stainless steel is king, sport watches are king, dress watches, eh, not so much. And yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, sort of hit the mainstream. So the people with the money are jumping in. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't cover a little bit of the ABCs of buying for value and for collecting. Can you drill this down to a few key pointers? What do people need to know? What do they need to look for? First of all, I always say, you know, stay in your lane. And I don't mean that in a, a style sense, but I mean, don't go into debt buying a watch. Right. Know what you can afford. Set a certain amount of money out and know that that's, that's the max that I'm going to do. And if the watch that, that you really want maybe is not hitting that note, there are plenty of options. There are plenty of brands out there. And this is, again, and this is geared more for somebody who really wants a watch for horology's sake and not for showing off sake. Look, at the end of the day, if you want to show off with your, again, Rolex or Patek or Audemars, well, I guess there's no substitute for you, but you're going to have to expect to pay. 
because you cannot walk into a dealer or a boutique and expect to walk out with that watch uh, unless you're somebody who's already spent several hundred thousand dollars there. There's no list. Everybody thinks there's a list. Like, oh, I'll put my name down on the list. I'll wait a year, two years, five years. I'll get my watch. No, there's no list. You put your name down. They're giving the watches to the people that they want to give the watches to. Figure out what it is you really want. And then also maybe figure out what you're willing to settle for. And I don't view buying a watch as settling. Like, I just love watches, but my philosophy might not be the same as somebody else's. So I like that philosophy. Recently, I came to you because the 1983 Rolex that my father gave me stopped and I took it to Rolex on Fifth Avenue, you know, thinking it would be a simple fix. And they ended up telling me that several parts needed to be refurbished. And that's when I, you know, paused and figured I needed to look into it more before letting them pull apart all that 1983 glory apart, especially, you know, in something so sentimental. And you told me to find an independent repair specialist. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about watch repair and refurbishment? In terms of vintage watches, and I hate to say that a 1983 watch is considered vintage. Uh, it hurts me right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not a, not, not something I want to be keen on, but <laughs> When it comes to a vintage watch or a watch with a certain level of provenance or age, you know, you want to keep it original as much as possible. And a company like Rolex will take a watch like that and say, oh, we're going to replace the hands. We're going to replace the dial. They're going to take the parts out and it's no longer going to be original. When all you really want is a mechanical refurbishment, uh, there might be some pieces under the dial and the movement, the, the engine of the watch, so to speak, that have to be replaced. And that's fine. But when you take sort of the front facing pieces and whether it's the handset or it's the dial or whatever, uh, it actually devalues the watch considerably. And now some people don't care. And I think what's interesting is that you're good, you know, you're going to Rolex and you're thinking I'm doing this the right way. I'm taking this to Rolex. Rolex is not a nostalgic company. Yeah. You have to be aware of that. They're, they're looking at this from a bottom line standpoint and moving forward standpoint. And that's not to their, you know, it's not saying it's a bad thing about them. It's just that that's who they're, that's who they are. And so they actually had some issues in the past where people sued them and said, look, I sent you this watch and it was going to be worth this much. And now I've got it back. It's not worth you threw out the parts that were in it, whatever, to the point where their watches of a certain age, they won't even accept. Because they're just like, you know, we don't need that trouble. We don't care. And so that's why you need to have an independent. The problem is, in order to get parts, you know, Rolex is kind of constricting that supply line. They're choking that supply chain. So a lot of uh, watchmakers who maybe previously could get these parts can't necessarily get them anymore. And so it puts everybody in a bit of a situation. I'm not sure what the end game is there. You know, to me, Rolex should probably want to support those guys, but anybody who tells you they know what Rolex is thinking is lying to you. Nobody knows what those guys are doing or what they're up to. They are a sphinx when it comes to this. And look, it's Rolex. They're the 800 pound gorilla. So they're going to do what they want to do. And for better or for worse, that that's just the world we live in. Whom do you admire in your industry and why? Well, there's so many people. Um, <laughs> that I admire. 
Who comes to mind? Yeah, it's funny. I mentioned before uh, a brand called MBNF, which is Max Busser and Friends. And uh, Maximilian Busser is sort of this impresario uh, in the industry. He's worked with a number of brands before. And he's not a watchmaker, but he's a creative. And so hence his brand is Max Busser and Friends. And he's partnered with some of the best, most uh, brilliant watchmakers out there to create the most esoteric and psycho watches you can imagine that are based on science fiction shows he watched in his childhood or, you know, the, just the physiology of a frog or, or, or what have you. And just sort of his own enthusiasm, his own willingness to kind of step back from the limelight and say, you know, you guys are creating this movement. You're doing this, you're doing that. And then just if you know him personally, it's just sort of a nice, enthusiastic, fun person. He's kind of who I want to be when I grow up, you know, <laughs> but his level of creativity and, and energy, it, it, it's something that, that exists far beyond mine. So I just sort of have to sit and watch what he does. And his watches are not for everybody. And I love that, too. You know, if you look him up, I mean, the, the way that they tell time, uh, it's, it's not hands and you know, dials and stuff. It's, it's very strange. And, and I guess I just, um, I love seeing people taking chances like that and actually succeeding. How do you think you get your best ideas? When do they come to you? I think having, having a drink or two and, and, and maybe turning the lights down a little bit and just kind of getting in a zone, you know, writing can, can be fun and it can be cathartic and a release, but you know, when you have to write something, and then you have to fight that. It's not so much fun. And then you start hitting a brick wall. And I think that, you know, the key is really to put yourself in a situation that makes you comfortable and happy and allows things to move instead of banging up against stuff. I'm so curious to hear about this. What's ahead? What's on your list of must do's, either as president of Red Bar or simply as a watch expert? Well, you know, the whole watch expert thing to me is, is hilarious. I think nowadays kind of everybody can be an expert. You know, well, when I was younger, you know, you really had to work for it. You know, I, I would go to, you know, the local magazine, international magazine shops and read the trade publications because, again, we didn't have the Internet like we do now. And, you know, I would visit the ADs to the point where they're like, all right, just let this kid in. You know, why is this guy always looking at watches out, you know, and he's only 15. The internet around 2004, 2005, it kind of matured to the point where everybody could get online, you could join a forum, and then the blogs came out, you can read the blogs, and it doesn't take a whole lot to be an expert anymore. So, so I feel like in that case, you know, nobody needs to listen to me. What's next for Red Bar? What are your thoughts on building Red Bar? I want to continue to grow Red Bar. I, I want it to be where people want us to be. One of my favorite chapters that and it kind of cracks me up is we have a red bar in Newfoundland. And I, I thought like five people lived there. It's Newfoundland. Like, you know, I, I look on the, the plane map when I'm flying to Europe and I'm flying over Newfoundland. Like what, flying over there? it, yeah. But somebody had reached out and, you know, they had a good resume and, you know, they were really said, oh, no, there are people here. We want to do this. And then, of course, I looked in and realized, no, there's actually a lot going on in Nova Scotia, Newfoundland. And, you know, I'm the asshole. It's, you know, I'm the idiot. But to me, that was a perfect example of saying, you know, we want to be where people want us. And so if there's a community there that wants to get together and talk about watches for what I consider the right reasons, 
And that's it. And we, we, our first rule, the first rule of Red Bar is no assholes. Like we've written that down. No assholes. Can't be a snob. You can't, you know, then there's the door. Get the fuck out. Like there's no time for that. I love that. You're going to pick up somebody's watches and say, oh, what, what's this piece of shit? Ugh, you know, because I'm wearing this. Get the fuck out. Like, we have no time for that. So as long as people want to do that and, and then they get the, the ethos, then that's my goal. I just want us to be everywhere that we can be that. And hopefully by doing this and getting enough groups together, one of the things we haven't talked about is that we have the Red Bar Fund. So, you know, one of the things that Kathleen and James and I had sort of thought when we really made this official was if our goal is getting, and let's call it what it is, a bunch of white guys with more money than they know what to do with together to play with their metal Barbie dolls, you got to give something back. And so the Red Bar Fund is that, that the money that we make from the events that we do with brands and, you know, the fundraising that we do, it all goes into that fund. And once it goes in there, it's managed for us by a separate entity of 501c3. We can't pull it back out. And then it can only be donated to another legitimate charity, 501c3. That's wonderful. When did you kick that off? Uh, that was right when we started the company. From the very beginning, that was, was always our thing, was to give back. Beautiful. Um, because again, we're all so lucky to be able to, again, like I said, to play with our metal Barbie dolls. How can you have something like that and not give back? Uh, and especially today, and even more so, you know, with everything yeah. that's been going on in the world. And so even the limited edition watches that we do, we do partner with brands to create uh, red bar specific timepieces. Um, you know, a portion of that always goes back into the fund so that we can continue to do the good work. I'm excited to wrap up today's podcast with this special watch edition of Obsixed. What are your two favorite men's watches? You know, right now it is uh, the Bulgari Octa Finissimo. And that's a whole line of watches that covers everything from time only to chronograph to perpetual calendar to minute repeater. But the design of this watch, uh, ultra thin, which I think is cool. It's something that has sort of come back. Yeah, we talked before about the stainless steel watches with the integrated bracelets. And of course, the, the trademark material for these watches is titanium. So it makes them also impossibly light as well. Not for everybody, the design, but to me, the Octa Finissimo is sort of the kind of ultimate watch right now. And besides this, another men's watch? Grand Seiko. So everybody thinks of Seiko as sort of more of a budget watch here in the States, but Grand Seiko uh, is a luxury brand that, uh, you know, was huge in Japan, you know, for decades. And then it finally came to the United States in 2017. Uh, and, and the work that they've done since then is incredible. So actually two of my favorite watches right now are Grand Seiko's. And not only are they amazing watches from a design standpoint, from a technical standpoint, but the price point, you know, the value proposition is off the charts too. And so I would say right now, my favorite Grand Seiko is the SBGE uh, 413, which is known as the Shunbun. It's part of their spring season series. And it's got this dial that is, slightly pinkish and basically inspired by cherry blossoms mm. and it, it's hard to explain you got to see it but it's it's beautiful it's subtle and, and technically superior to anything that let's just say rolex could make two favorite women's watches that's a tough one 
you know, nowadays we're trying to move away from strictly women's watches. Back in the day, the whole thing was, oh, we'll put a quartz movement in it, sprinkle some diamonds on it, put a mother of pearl dial, we'll call it a day. But there are a couple of brands that actually don't condescend to women. Blanc Pan is one of those. And uh, it's, it's a storied, historic Swiss brand that makes some of the, the most beautiful watches across any genre that you can imagine. Yeah. But what I love that they do is that they're making stainless steel watches in women's sizes. So sizes that will fit a, a woman's wrist, but we're not talking about watches that, oh, it's diamonds. We've dumbed it down. We put, you, know, uh, you can have exactly what you want in a men's watch, but you can have it in a woman's watch too. And another brand that has done that brilliantly, a much younger brand and a British brand of all things, Bremont. Mm, we love Bremont. Love Bremont. The brothers behind that brand, uh, Giles and uh, Nick English. Um, they're not tourists. They love watches. They love what it represents. And so they have a collection called the Solo. But within that collection, there's the Solo 34. So it's a 34 millimeter watch. So again, a much smaller watch design. And let's be honest, that case size, men aren't going to go for that. But while you have the option of doing diamonds and mother of pearl and all that fun stuff, you also have the option of not. Look, there's nothing wrong with wanting diamonds and all that. There are men who want that too. But I love that they, they haven't just sort of shut that out and still with the mechanical movements and very reasonable price points. What is your all-time favorite unisex watch right now? Right now, it would be uh, the Cartier Tank Must, M-U-S-T. And uh, it's sort of a revival of a watch they did in the past. And oddly for, you know, a watch that I might recommend, it's quartz, but very slim and a design that anyone can wear it. And it comes in multiple sizes, but whether you're a man wearing the smallest size or a woman wearing the largest size, doesn't matter. And then lastly, what is your favorite value watch? Yeah, we've talked a lot about Rolex and in terms of what they're doing and you know the prices they're commanding on the secondary market. But if you look at their sub-brand Tudor, I think you're going to find some of the best watches out there, regardless of value, regardless of any of that stuff. You know, It's a brand that's taking the chances that Rolex doesn't want to take, whether it's using materials like bronze or titanium or even sterling silver a watch made out of sterling silver. You can buy that from them. I actually own one of those. Oh, I want a Tudor. So I would recommend as in terms of value, the Tudor Black Bay 58. Okay. And it's, so it's a, a sport watch based on a dive watch design, but at a, a size that's reasonable. Uh, it's not some 45 millimeter behemoth on your wrist. And yet you can get it. No, I do love that. No, and that's the beauty. Again, there's no right or wrong, Yeah. but to me, it, it sort of hits that Goldilocks kind of thing, you know, that the right in the middle, mm. just right. But if you want it in stainless steel, yes. You want it in solid gold, we can do that for you. You want bronze, no problem. You want sterling silver, we got you covered. And all at price points that won't break the bank and even on the secondary market. So I, I love what they're doing. Well, this was great talking a little shop with my old friend, Adam. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. This was a pleasure.